Hello, friend. Thank you, as always, for listening to The Tully Show. I really enjoyed talking to James Pogue, who wrote a very provocative article in Vanity Fair about the rise of a new strain of conservatism. Uh, I hope you feel the same way about these conversations that I do. We're not taking sides. We're just all looking at an increasingly crazy political world and just trying to make sense of it all. So please, I hope you listen. I hope that's the way this conversation comes across, and I hope you can enjoy it as such. There is lots of really provocative information and theorizing contained in the episode you are about to hear real quick patreon.com slash mike tully you know all the stuff that's up there well i just started a new show it's called classic rock classic question mark exclamation point i guess looking back at the classics that i personally have never listened to are they as good as everybody says they are i started with the beach boys pet sounds by the time you listen to this that is already on my patreon so if that sounds like your cup of tea come and join the fun patreon.com slash mike tully okay you ready to start this show Coming to you live, on tape, from an above-ground basement in rapidly gentrifying Culver City adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today from the future 51st state of Northern California, a writer and journalist whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's Vice, and more. Last month, he wrote what, at least from my perspective, was a vaguely chilling article in Vanity Fair entitled Inside the New Right, where Peter Thiel is placing his biggest bets. Hello and welcome, James Pogue. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for, for joining me. You're really mixed up in this world, the the talking political class. I, I've, I've known you for about six minutes, and I very <laughs> clearly have that impression. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, I'm I tend to think that, like, I'm able to report on the talking political class because I actually am, like, somewhat distant from it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, I mean, currently, as you mentioned, I live in what is known as the state of Jefferson. Yeah. Um, Far north of California, uh, town of 240 people. I live in a trailer park, actually. Um, but yes, I did. You know, I, I went to the last half of college in Brooklyn and I did the media thing a little bit. And that was enough to kind of have an inside connection to some of these people, but also like an outside perspective. And I think uh, if we're going to get into this stuff, I think a lot of why people responded to the piece is that so many people who write about politics and media today are so far within it that they don't see it for what it is and they don't see the outside perspective. And I think I had a little bit of that going on. I think I lucked into a kind of perspective there that helped out. I've read this article maybe three times. Um, I'm still not entirely sure I understand everything that's going on. It's, It's a lot. The story to me feels almost made up. I don't know how familiar you are with the author Gary Steingart. Pretty familiar. Yeah, Super Sad True Love Story is a terrific book he wrote a few years ago. He specializes in not quite Black Mirror, but things that are just like a little bit in the future seem impossible, but vaguely plausible. This portends a sort of a a, a particular flavor of a dark political future that you make the case is uh, 
um, possible, perhaps even likely, perhaps even inevitable. Is that all about right? Yeah, it's just which dark political future are we talking about? Um, uh -huh. So, I mean, to to bump off the Steingart thing for a while, you yeah. know, I read Super Sad True Love Story when I was an intern at Harper's, actually, uh, proof that I am somewhat in the elite media. Yeah. Um, and I got made fun of it. I got made fun of for it a lot because I thought that book was really good. It's amazing. And it's a it's a really good book. And what is, I think, memorable about it? And I actually tweeted this recently. It's funny you bring that up. Um, you know, that book was very prophetic uh, about a certain kind of mediated, addicted to phone, kind of sad, disconnected life that we were hurtling towards. And a lot of people made fun of him for suggesting that that life would be bad, right? And so the piece describes sort of two things at once in the sense that like, there's a burgeoning idea that I think transcends left and right, um, that where we've ended up now, and we can talk about what the contours of that is, uh, but the, the society we've ended up with is not working out for people and is hurtling towards a dystopia that is making us lonely, afraid, sad, mediated, controlled by devices. And a, tr a true kind of like evil technological kind of thing that we read about when we were kids that we were warned against. Uh, but the second thing that the piece describes is a kind of response to, to how to avoid that. Uh, that is coming in large part from the right, where there's a lot of energy in terms of talking about what tech is doing, why our politics don't seem to be able to answer the questions that young people are having. Um, and a lot of that trends, I think what you were asking about, uh, trends towards a kind of response that calls for a very strong authoritarian hand to get a handle on some of this stuff. Um, and that is a movement that I think is probably more general, especially on the young right, than most people understood. Um, this kind of vision that democracy is not enough to save us from that. Um, and so that's a lot of what the piece was about. Twitter bots, our addiction to phones, uh, the gig economy is a dystopian future from which there is no salvation other than the rise of some sort of fascist power structure. That Those are all kinds of words that you just said. How how closely does that resemble the reality of things you heard from people at the National Conservatism Conference, which is what the article is based around? Well, so to step back into like more theoretical stuff, I think what their critique or sort of the, the idea that they're they're pushing is this idea that America's state capacity is not high enough to respond to the challenges that we face, right? And so state capacity for people who haven't heard that term is a very kind of like wishy-washy generalized way of putting the ability of us to do governance in an effective manner, uh, particularly at the federal level. Um, and so, you can have concerns about our state capacity if you're like a climate activist, right? Like that, to me, that's the biggest kind of, you know, I live up here in Northern California. The two biggest things that affect my life in terms of state capacity are the fact that the rivers are heating up to the point that the ecosystems are dying. Uh, and the fact that you can't do prescribed burns, thinning, major level forestry work that it would take to prevent the town that I'm living in to eventually burn up in a Holocaust. Um, all of that is stuff that government could do. All of that stuff is things that, you know, if we had been able to get our act together in 2006, we could have addressed. Now it's probably too late. Um, and so on the right, 
they have a different answer than the left came up with. The left sort of thought, we're going to get Bernie in there. We're going to get tons and tons of populist energy. We're going to get a broad multiracial coalition that has so much political force that we're just going to basically take over the government and beat people down. Not literally, but but kind of beat down opposition and do these big sweeping changes that will excite people. Uh, that vision turned out to, for various reasons, not work out. Um, and the right has this other vision that is kind of like the administrative state is the problem uh, or that like we don't have enough of a national kind of values based traditional sort of sense of ourselves as a nation state anymore. We've been we've been globalized and dispersed. And so the response of cultural conservatism is we need to rebuild the national fabric of values and patriotism and stuff like that that makes liberals yeah. very uncomfortable. Um, and at the same time, re-centralize power in the executive so they can do more. Um, and it's very complicated. I think it's a little difficult to say that, you know, it's it's not, it's not, hey, let's have a monarchy like Saudi Arabia. It's not, hey, let's have Mussolini. Uh, but there are certainly flavors of authoritarian regimes that people <laughs> make people very, very uncomfortable. Um, and that that's an unescapable fact about it. Right. OK, so let's let's just go old school. Who, what, why, where, how and, and try to piece this thing together in a way that'll make sense not only to me, but to people who haven't even read the article. Sure. So just for starters, very quickly, Peter Thiel, he's in the subtitle for people who don't know, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, very right wing, spoke at the RNC before Trump ran in 2016. Now, at least according to the way you see things, pivoting away from Trump MAGA brand Republicanism into this quote unquote new right. Y correct. I mean, yeah. I would argue I would argue that Teal has never really been a, a MAGA guy. Yeah. Um, I would argue that a lot of the people that you think of, and it's hard to tell until you kind of know the flavor of this stuff, but a lot of the people in this ecosystem who are often portrayed as like ultra MAGA are very much on the Peter Teal side of things where they view Trump as a kind of bull in a China shop, a battering ram, whatever stupid metaphor you want to use. Yeah. Um, to attack the stuff they don't like, but they don't personally like respect him very much. They're they and they're also they're highly intellectual. Um, so right. the bigger shift that Teal made, um, to to my mind, is that he kind of started out as a very surprisingly traditional Republican, uh, which a lot of people don't know. I mean, Teal was a member of the Federal Society in law school. He didn't go to like programming school. He he didn't he went to law school. Uh, he was a member of the Federal Society. Uh, and he's always been a kind of mainstream, well, sorry, he came very much from a mainstream kind of conservative perspective. Um, the same formations that you give you people like Brett Kavanaugh, that sort of thing. Um, then he shifted as he got into tech as an entrepreneur, not as a developer. Um, and he kind of got into this thing, this phase that people know a lot about where he was like into seasteading and people talked about him as a hyper libertarian. He's a skeptic of the state, skeptic of democracy. Um, and then all of a sudden it started to make people feel really weird when all of a sudden Peter Thiel, hyper libertarian became, you know, a proud nationalist. And he's, you know, he's converted, he's religious now. Um, things that you don't associate with sciencey tech guys. Um, but what has happened is that Teal, along with, uh, and I describe in the piece, uh, Blake Masters, who's his longtime sort of confidant, student, um, protege, protege even, uh, who's 
35 and running for Senate in Arizona, um, and J.D. Vance, who worked for him at Mithril Capital uh, after writing Hillbilly Elegy and now just won the Ohio Senate primary. Um, they have adopted a view of nationalism and kind of sort of cultural populism, this kind of idea that conservative values are, are core to a national project. Um, they've adopted that as a corrective, as Peter Thiel will say, to the sort of brain dead global one world state. Um, that's a quote from his, he gave a uh, an opening keynote speech at, at the National Conservatism Conference. Um, and it's a good window into Peter Thiel's worldview because he talked about nationalism as a corrective to the kind of Davos globalized um, Aspen Institute vision of the world that, you know, neoliberalism and, and consumer capitalism and that kind of stuff is going to solve all our problems organically, just stay the course, this kind of liberalism. Uh, Peter Thiel hates that. Uh, he hates, that's the thing he's pushing back against. And he offered a vision that was really funny. He, he said he wanted to get back to an America where we had ticker tape parades for individual people. Um, this kind of very mom and apple pie kind of you know, we're going to have national heroes again. We're all going to throw ticker tape and wave flags and cheer for them together as a nation. Um, but the person he proposed as the first candidate to get one uh, was Satoshi Nakamoto, um, the guy who supposedly behind Bitcoin. So it was this kind of very weird amalgam of what you might call techno-futurism, um, yeah. but also of like an America with interstitial shared kind of old school patriotism and, and cultural values that that would provide a bulwark against some of like the evils of as as Blake Masters will call them of techno capitalism. Um, so it's a very strange world. It's an interesting one, um, but it's often a very scary one. Um, it is it's so multifaceted. It's like every single piece of information in the story and every new piece of information you're giving me, it's like, okay, I, I understand exactly what you're saying in a vacuum. And I see that these things are obviously all related, but it's it's so nuanced. And it, like any uh, uh, political movement, it's made up of a bunch of individuals. So of course, there's, there, there's nuance among you talk to one guy, you talk to the guy next to him, you're going to get slightly different answers but again to to try to pin this down to something that people can follow one more question sort of about trump the way that you put trump in the article uh in the context of the people you were hanging out with this was not trump world even if many of the people in the room saw trump as a useful tool here's a question in regard to that and, and let me hazard a guess as to what the answer might be i'm very curious to know among the these young motivated intellectuals who identify as right wing, what their take is on the subject of supposed election fraud in 2020. Because that, to me, frankly, kind of informs how seriously I need to take anything else you say. My guess is, yeah, of course he lost the election, but who cares? The system is so rigged. Anything that rips a piece of it out is is a worthwhile, is two wrongs making a right. Yeah, I would say that's pretty accurate. Um I would say most people don't care. Uh, I, I think, let's look at it this way. So yeah. Blake Masters, I saw Blake Masters at a private campaign event in Arizona. Um, and he was asked repeatedly. I mean, this was Arizona more recent to the election than now. Mm -hmm. um, there were, you can imagine there were a lot of questions from kind of Trumpy donor type people about this. Um, and Blake kind of just, 
I wouldn't say he seemed like he was really engaged with it, but certainly he wasn't pushing back. Right. Um, and I think uh, if you want to look at it in a longer term sense, uh, I think that a lot of these people probably privately, I don't know this for a fact, probably privately don't know or really care whether Trump lost the election. Um, uh, my sense is that it's actually pretty good for them because what happened in 2016 was that you had a certain amount of what you call like America first style energy. Um, the, the Bannonites, Peter Thiel, uh, uh, Peter Thiel was the head, I think the chair of the Trump transition team. Uh, Blake yes. Masters had a, um, had an office in Trump tower between Steve Mnuchin and Steve Bannon, which is really funny. Um, and uh, they really pushed hard to get a lot of their people in and broadly speaking failed. Uh, and I mean, people remember Ryan's Priebus taking over in the administration, this kind of stuff. Uh, and by the end, a lot of those people were gone. Like a lot of the, what these guys call the rhinos were gone. And you had this kind of chaos because the people who replaced them were often just out of nowhere and it was hard to get a handle on the administration. I think it worked out pretty well for them to wait until 2024 when you get Trump or even preferably DeSantis from their view. Um, mm -hmm. And you can put in, you basically purged all those bad guys and there's nobody left. There's nobody left, but the America first type people. And I've heard this uh, both privately and on the record a lot of times. Uh, Blake said, we're gonna do better. Um, and other people that I won't name have said more directly, like quote, there's nobody else everybody got fucking fired next time it's going to be all our people and so they're playing a game that's not i think readily apparent to the public i think they will say particularly like blake and jd uh will say that the election was stolen i would assume um i think you have to say that in order to curry favor with trump and also to curry favor in a republican primary i would wager that privately they don't believe that um but and just one last thing that goes to your point, the reason that they're okay with playing ball and essentially defying what seems to be a legitimate election uh, is because they view the other institutions of democracy outside of pure voting schemes and uh, you know what we understand as governance. They understand governance and power in America as a much broader thing. Uh, yes. It's represented by an establishment that's both corporate, um, especially in the media, in academia. And they're arguing that a kind of establishment cultural liberalism uh, controls all those institutions. And so there is no such thing as a free election in this country. That, that would be their argument. So they don't really care, I think. Which is a fairly wild thing to say. You know, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. The deck is stacked against you, even though I keep hearing about this liberal media when, as far as I can tell, Fox News is far and away the dominant media outlet and television and i think also online and drudge does pretty well uh, well I, this is completely unrelated to anything what do you know about drudge i used to kind of hate read drudge and now drudge is like weirdly center leaning left what the hell happened to drudge yeah i was i'm trying to think what podcast i was just listening to where they were talking they were talking shit about him um I don't even disguise it. I actually finally added it to my favorites. For years, I went there, but I couldn't commit to actually calling it a favorite. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, no, this is just like a legitimate source of news now. I think, and I don't know this because I didn't really go back into Twitter, but like yeah. when this piece started to go fucking really, really, really viral, yeah. I think Drudge was a part of that. 
uh, which I would be interested. Oh, I think it's, I'm almost positive. That's where I got it from. Okay. Interesting. Um, and I would be interested to go back and look at what his framing was because this piece, uh, as you'll notice, I actually, it, I try to do this thing that I always get in trouble for from everybody where I don't editorialize that much. And I just try to describe. Yeah. And I try to let people talk as much as they can so that it can be a Rorschach test across the political spectrum. And broadly speaking, what happened was a lot of people on the right were like, wow, this is crazy. We're never described in a fair way. Hooray. And a lot of people on the left were like, this is the end of democracy. Thank you so much for doing this. You've exposed the fascist threat to America. And it was surprising how many people are in theory, Republicans who were make who were who read the piece that way, right? Um, and I would imagine that Drudge was probably one of them. Uh, which just goes, I mean, I think Ann Coulter like hates him now. Uh, there was, yeah. a, oh, dude, he's got he's he's got an anti-DeSantis headline up right now. I actually think I think it was a Vanity Fair piece. Now that I not to not to plump the magazine, but mm-hmm. I think it was a Vanity Fair piece about Florida and politics. Uh, Might have been it's worth going back and looking, but there's a lot of hate for him. And I think it came across in a recent piece about kind of the new right wing, what you might call exodus, migration, whatever it is to Florida. Um, the peninsula of truth, as Ted Cruz called it. Uh, at <laughs> um, But uh, so that, I mean, that's as much as I know, but it drudges a good example of a movement across I think the political right or what used to be the political right, whether it was Bill Crystal, I'm just naming people who I'm totally solipsistic here, but I'm just naming people yeah. who read this piece and evinced horror or have read my writing about J.D. Vance in the, in the past and have evinced horror. And so it's like David Frum, David Brooks, uh, David French, um, the kind of three moderate Davids. Yeah, all the Davids, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, Steve Schmidt, um, Drudge, Bill Crystal. All those people look at this stuff and think this is the end of days. Um, it's well, it's shocking to me that I, I, I don't think that you went out to do a, a hatchet job, but it's shocking to me that anybody would look at this and go, finally, somebody's portraying us the way we want to be portrayed. Because again, I'll say it, I read this as uh, and some and 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 I really went through it like line by line to go, yeah. okay, what what are they saying that I find so objectionable? Because right. if you're really saying I want to restore like families and you know who 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 doesn't think that that uh, globalization has been at best a mixed bag? These aren't controversial statements. It's it's the um, a lot of times I even wonder what it is that we're really arguing about because when I try to pin it down on things, they seem like kind of like straw man articles. Like are are you are you really that upset about? Uh, trans issues, you know? I, I don't think you actually care about bathrooms all that much. It, it clearly stands for something else to you. I don't think you actually believe that the Democratic Party sits home all day thinking about trans people. That's not, that's not an accurate, but, but, it, but it feels that way to you. What is the, it's like when my daughter gets angry about a balloon popping, something happened 15 minutes before that. That's the real issue here. So what is the core? What is the real animus? Why does uh, a Silicon Valley multi-billionaire truly really care about working class Americans to what, what I'm not saying he doesn't, but like what, what really is stuck in their craw fundamentally? Well, okay. So to answer, I actually think I can answer 
kind of both sides of that question in mm-hmm. a way that flows together. Let me see if I can do yeah. it. So yeah. I think the reason that they were, you know, like broadly, I mean, I haven't heard from Blake. I, I, the last time I talked to JD, he hadn't read the piece. Um, so, and I think it, he may just not read the piece. He was asked about it by an uh, NBC uh, the night of his primary, and he had a very funny kind of smile on his face as he answered it. Um, but uh, I say that because I'm not necessarily speaking for the characters in the piece, but people in this kind of new right sphere of Twitter, um, let's say that a lot of times on the political left, when you look at the right, the, the goal is we're going to crush these people first and then we're going to tackle some of these issues, like yeah. how to handle the fact that globalization seems to not be working out for a lot of people, uh, both in the United States and not. Um, uh, how to tackle the fact that a lot of people feel alone, alienated, disconnected from a community that seems to be ravaged now by just constant consumerism and change and all this stuff that people on the left agree with, right? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when you write about the right, you say, well, they're self-evidently hypocrites because of this. And when people on the right write about people on the left, they say, well, they're self-evidently hypocrites because of this. And on the right, you know, it's frequently trans stuff. On the left, it's like, you can't possibly care about the American working class because you take money from billionaires. Uh, And instead of really engaging with the ideas, the the descriptions of each side become sort of bound up in what you've already kind of decided makes the other side untouchable, essentially. Well said, Uh, sure. And... So what they liked was that, like, I actually do take seriously that their driving force, particularly on the political side of like J.D. Vance and Blake Masters, is a sophisticated and real criticism of how globalization works, both for our economy and our culture. Um, I take that I take their that is their governing force politically. I take it very seriously. And I think that the concerns that they raise are very important. It doesn't mean I like them. It doesn't mean I have a vote for them. Right. Uh, but I take that seriously. And I think that in terms of trans stuff, for example, um, this is not a defense of their skepticism of trans stuff. I'm not saying that. But mm-hmm. where they're going with that is that they view that as a part of a sort of dehumanizing, denaturalizing process that is happening across human life where we're becoming more like we're we're getting like pulled back from being human we're beginning our sort of our minds are getting digitized and you'll hear on red scare for example this is one that's stuck in my craw because um and obviously I, again i'm not endorsing this view this is actually a view that i'm not here really, to play gotcha really Don't kind of yeah. threw me right. um to hear on red scare but they were talking about judith butler uh the feminist theorist and somehow that got to um, hormone drugs and a depiction of um, kind of hormone therapy as a long-term kind of pharma plot to get people kind of hooked and pay into a global capitalist system that causes them to essentially have to pay to subscribe to have these hormones that help you fulfill your identity. Um, and it very much fits in with a kind of new right worldview of like, Capitalism is ripping us out of our literal human nature. And this is something that we're very alarmed by. Um, I think for people on the left, uh, as objectionable as you may find this kind of talk, it's probably important for everybody to think about why so many people respond to that. Absolutely. Um, That's the question. Yes. And and like what the answers are going to be. Um, I, I, I'm not 
now I'm not talking about um, sexuality or, um, or trans politics, but more like why so many people really, really respond to criticisms of how technology impacts our lives, how capital impacts our lives. Yeah. And I do think that the left has sort of lost the thread on some of that stuff post Bernie. Uh, and I think it's important to bring it back. Well, yeah, I mean, we've clearly moved into, you know, the 21st century has begun and it's in full swing now. And you can see that 20th century politicians are they they look old now. They, they're their their skill set is suited to a world that no longer exists. And that applies to most people over the age of 60 from from either party. You know, Ted Cruz doesn't come off any better in, in, in your piece than, you know, um, then Joe Biden might co might come across to some of these people. They're they're they're, they're relics of a of a of a world that no longer exists. I just I'm really to pin it down. I'm, I want to understand this. So whenever a bunch of smart people believe something, whether or not I agree with it, I wanna I wanna understand it and I wanna respect their intelligence. I okay. So to really pin down, and I know we're just using it as as an example, not to blow it out of proportion, but okay, big pharma, long game hormones are people genuinely concerned that the unless we stop something in a really really drastic sort of way my children are gonna be groomed to grow up not being sure of their identity because i feel like you, you you put things out there and it's like scary and you sort of put a phantom in in the shadows and people go oh that and you go well, no let's really pin down what are you afraid of here what exactly are we talking about here like that's an insane thing to be afraid of there are i could off the top of my head name 700 more clear and present dangers yeah i mean the groomer thing i'm laughing uh you can see i, I forgot that nobody else could see i'm laughing yeah. here because the groomer thing if you're like if you like follow a lot of right-wing accounts as i do yeah. um you already know that that's a joke. Like they're just doing that. Like that's just trolling. Like, but it, okay. it's, it's effective trolling. Like, and I, I don't, it, people, I don't think anyone truly believes that. I don't even know what groomer means. It just sounds bad, right? Like that right. stuff, yeah, that, and I want to be clear, like that well, stuff we'll, is- Well, we'll throw, throw the word out, training. Yeah. You know, I mean, grooming right. obviously has taken on a lot of baggage. But so I, I want to, okay. So I, I want to throw out, a concept here or like a kind of trick that makes all of this so hard to describe. Right. Yeah. So like the classic definition of ideology, and I always get wrong who this was, but it's like Lenin or something, but uh, you know, you're, you're trying to describe the water that the fish is in. And obviously the fish has never known anything but water. Yes. And then one day, if you can just get the fish to understand that there's this thing that is water that you don't necessarily have to be in and you could crawl out and grow legs, become an alligator. Like yes. the fish can never go back to what they were. Right. Right. And the water in this case is liberalism, not American liberalism. Like, like I vote blue wave Democrat, that kind of, I understand. Thing. Yeah. It's, it's liberalism in the sense that like society should be organized on the basis of an individual making free choices. And that's the best thing that could ever happen. It's the idea that, if you don't like your iPhone or all of this new technology that has come in uh, this, and this gets to why they're such big fans of Ted Kaczynski, for example, uh, you're the called reactionary, you're called bad. Um, and uh, there's a, there's a famous anthropologist. I, I will get to this. Everybody just follow me for a second. There's a famous yeah. anthropologist that describes culture. Um, this is in the David Graeber book, uh, the new one, the story of everything, which I highly recommend uh, that describes culture as not, 
the set of things that you as people adopt. It's the set of things that you can refuse to adopt, right? So you can refuse to, like you define yourself as a culture historically in tribal societies because like Athabascans had snowshoes, but Inuits didn't, but they had kayaks and Athabascans didn't. And those were cultural reasons. Like those are both good technologies, but for various cultural reasons, people refuse to adopt them. Now, what a conservative would argue is that we've adopted a wholesale global ideology that if you Mm -hmm. refuse to participate in this thing, you're bad and evil. You, if you don't like new tech stuff, you're reactionary. If you don't accept trans people into your community, you are bad. Uh, And so they've developed a kind of counter liberal ideology where they will then make forays like the groomer stuff to push back against it in ways that are kind of trolling, kind of political. Uh, But what they're doing is solidifying the walls around their right to refuse. Um, And that can be very, very confusing to see from the outside. Um, But that's also why this movement ties in so well with global stuff. So you will notice on right wing Twitter, a lot of praise, for example, for the Taliban. Because there are people who pushed back the global empire in the right. name of refusing to adopt culture. You sure. will find tons. Of, I mean, these guys love France because France has this this kind of like hard, yeah, like traditional français de souche now, like like a kind of French from from the ground up. Um, and it, it's like people love a culture. People on the right love that there are still some places that can push back and put up walls. And a lot of what we notice in our culture war is an attempt to define those walls and find ways to do that. Um, and so that's the Disney stuff. It's mm-hmm. they're experimenting. Um, and I know this is a long answer, but if you really want to see where a lot of this um, kind of political energy is trending is look at Hungary. Um, and no, I don't think this is all like some coordinated plot with Viktor Orban that they're all doing this together. But Hungary took, Hungary now describes themselves as an illiberal democracy. They removed themselves from the liberal sphere and Orban systematically put his people in control of institutions that are extra governmental. So the media, the, um, I mean, he went to war with George Soros who was funding a lot of NGOs, um, academia, things like that. So that you could build up cultural resilience to say, no, we're not doing this globalist thing. We're not doing we're not going to have LBGTQ discussions dominating our corporations, things like that. And that's kind of where this is headed. Uh, again, I'm not endorsing that view. Yeah, right. It's just very, very complicated to see from the outside because it just looks like jokes. It looks like bullshit. It looks like people aren't serious. And I would argue they are very serious and they have a lot of thoughts about this. It's just hard to understand if you're still in the liberal water. Yeah, somewhere in my notes here, I actually have the whole, you know, fish can't notice water until it makes it to the surface thing here. Right. And I get, you know, uh, Star Wars was by George Lucas's own admission, sort of a metaphor metaphor for uh, for Vietnam. And guess what? The Americans were not the rebels in this scenario. And yes, I understand that, uh, you know, French culture is one of the many treasures of the world. And if and things that took thousands of years to build up, if lost can never be recovered. And there's a bunch of kids in Italy that don't want to stomp grapes or make olive oil or learn how to repair shoes anymore because they all want to move to the city and dance at discos. Like, I understand all of these things. I guess it's sort of the... um the the sense from the the far right the paranoid right the i just don't get it right and then they have it all figured out and i don't right 
that such drastic measures are called. It seems that the cure that they prescribe is so much larger than the issue as I or anyone I experience experiences it. Here's something from your article. Um, the disparate elements of the new right, uh, the idea that individualism, bureaucratic government, and big tech combining to give us a world that is tyrannical, chaotic, divide, devoid of the systems of value and morality that give human life richness and meaning. As a legitimate senatorial candidate, Black, Blake Masters succinctly put it, a dystopian hell world. I, I do. I interact with like lots of listeners from all over America and Canada. I just know a lot of people who are still just like going to jobs and raising kids, and yeah, inflation and and uh, the trucking industry getting replaced by self-driving trucks. Very legitimate issues. I don't experience anyone who feels that they're in any danger of raising their children in a dystopian hell world devoid of any value or morality. Where is that idea coming from? Oh, that's interesting because I actually I actually feel like I have a different experience with that. I okay. actually feel like I know a lot of people who who do feel that. All right. Um, I feel it myself sometimes. I think that again, that's why I was sort of able to access that headspace. Yeah. It's a matter of interpretation. Um, the thing, so so, uh, to help people get a little context, this isn't in the piece, but um, if you listen to um. If you listen to people, especially associated with with stuff like the Claremont Institute, um, things that are like bridge the gap between the institutional MAGA right and the kind of online what you call dissident right, um, the phrase that always comes up is, "Do you know what time it is?" And they always say, "You know, if 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 people don't know what time it is, they shouldn't be in the movement." And what they mean by that is that these things that you just described are happening so fast that something we've sort of entered a hyperloop, right? Where like the things, I mean, you know, it's just basic calculus, right? It, this, is, this is the way to look at the graph is not, oh, from Vietnam until now, there was a kind of ever steady line of crisis. There's inflation we dealt with it. Now it's like, these things are happening at an increasing rate. Yeah. Um, and I actually, I personally, I, I personally agree with that. I agree with that interpretation. I think that you can, I think that we have entered a kind of, particularly with regard to social media and how it affects our internet, or sorry, our um, our politics. Um, I think we've reached a point where people are whipped into such a frenzy that something is going to kind of snap. Like we, yeah. we actually don't have the mechanisms of political discussion anymore. Um, I don't think you have to be right wing to view it that way though. Like, I don't, sure. I don't think it has anything to do with that necessarily. Um, it's just that these guys, again, and we haven't talked about this, but because of some of their deeper seated thinkers, they have a formulation for it. They have, they have a language for this stuff that is very highly developed in a way that I don't, you don't see from the left. The left is kind of like, well, frankly, the left is kind of caught in this perpetual war between do we focus on class and do we focus on identity? Um, and neither of those really speaks to the kind of hyperloop of crises that we're facing at the moment, unfortunately, because we keep trying to solve which one we're going to use and then move forward. Um, and the result is a certain amount of stasis on the left and a certain amount of dispirited feelings. Okay, so addressing the sort of darkness as I 
perceived it at the center of this piece. I guess some of the people who were depicted and it did not see it as such. So the name that uh, the kind the piece ultimately sort of the the Palpatine of this thing ends up being this Curtis Yarvin, who's uh, an influential. Okay far-right political thing. I, I'm, I, I, I don't even necessarily mean that as I perceive it to somebody who sees this as a bunch of, a bunch of, a bunch of evil people. He's the guy in the shadows who ultimately yeah. seems like ideologically in no other way, ideologically is, is, yeah. is really setting the tone for the ideology. Um, although I think he would probably bristle and is probably annoyed at people like me continuing to talk about that one time he said we need a dictator he has talked about at times uh, I, I was that not I, I believe I quoted that word from your 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 piece that in throughout his long career yeah. of, 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 of uh, you know sharing thought online he has advocated that what we're gonna need is some guy to come and take out the trash and at times he's used a lot of words but dictator is one of them fair Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I if, if you saw me cocking my head just there, it was it was me thinking he only said that one time. Oh, okay, um, this isn't this <laughs> isn't like a rare thing for Curtis. Right. Um, okay. And then uh, I and mean, then you, go ahead. Yeah, and again, you use different terms, but um, I was also laughing during your question when you when you were walking away from the Palpatine thing. Um, I have a distinct memory of Curtis uh, talking to someone saying, uh, "I'm not Aragorn, but I am Gandalf." Um, and so that kind of gives a flavor of where he is in, in this ferment, um, yeah. from his own lips. Um, and so Curtis Yarvin is an ex-programmer. I mean, a lot of people listening to this probably have some idea who Curtis is, um, mm -hmm. especially, uh, if they're more plugged into kind of tech and media stuff. Um, so I won't go too far into it, but, um, Curtis has formed I wouldn't even say formed. Curtis has popularized things that concepts and ideas that I think are pretty general and come from a lot of different sources, um, particularly around why our state capacity is so low um, and what we should do about it and about how our media works. Um, and so to go to your first point about the dictator, um, Curtis will say, um, you know, he'll ask two questions. Are we a democracy? And should we be? Uh, and Curtis's personal answer to both of those is no. Um, and he thinks that essentially what we do is we live in a vast decentralized oligarchy uh, where, uh, you know, I'm sort of, it's funny in the Curtis conception, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm kind of funny. Cause like if we had a Politburo and a, you know like a kind of Soviet communist party like probably you and I would both have cards in the party but like because our system is so decentralized um, we can have influence, but nobody really says who we are, or what we do. Right. And like, we're, we don't, our roles are not defined. Our roles are not visible. Um, but if you can influence people and you can in turn influence how government behaves uh, yeah. by influencing powerful people, then you are essentially a part of a power structure. Uh, and Curtis views this as so decentralized and so kind of, he views, you know, for example, the New York times is a fourth branch of government. Uh, he's a big proponent of, you know, this kind of critique of the administrative state, I forget, he calls it something else now, not the deep state, but the whatever. Uh, he Curtis is always coming up with his own terms. So he doesn't use new right anymore. He uses deep right. Uh -huh. um, he's got all kinds of different stuff. But the point being that there's these shadow forces that prevent the executive from acting efficiently. 
Right. Um, and that historically uh, under Hamilton, and then we had a rebirth under Lincoln, and then we had a rebirth under Roosevelt, uh, we have re-centralized power in the executive and gotten back to these kind of like periods of American glory days. And that's what yeah. he's trying to do. So he's a big fan, ironically, of Roosevelt, who created the administrative state, because that was Roosevelt's solution to the crises of the time. And he's looking... He'll change. He'll talk. It's difficult to follow sometimes. But he 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 describes himself as a monarchist. Um, he says uh, monarchism. It's not fascism, but it's still pretty based. Um, and he he kind of is a proponent of what he literally will call wanting a monarch, um, but sort of like a kind of constitutional retakeover where you re-centralize power in the executive, you re-establish essentially an aristocracy, a governing aristocracy, such as we had in mid-century America, you know, with these guys coming out of Harvard and Groton, um, who of course led us into pure disaster for many years. Um, yeah. But he views us, he views all societies as having aristocracies. He just thinks that ours is like kind of hidden. And a yeah. lot of people on the MAGA right see that as an aristocracy and have developed a critique for it. And part of what's ripping our country apart is that on the kind of the mainstream liberal side, there's this vehement, vehement, vehement argument that they don't represent a cultural and media aristocracy. And so you have these two kind of irreconcilable sides who have a very different vision of who holds power in America and what they're doing with it. You know, I, I, again, I just, I understand it. I have trouble why you would get such a, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm kind of under the weather. I'm just going to say get such a hard on for it. I don't think you'd be offended by me saying that. Like, it. Where are you saying, yeah, me or him? No, you, you, you. I, I feel like I can, I feel like I can use phrases like hard on and talking politics with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. I'm just, do I have a hard on for it? Or no, 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 I'm, no, 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 no. <laughs> I don't understand. It's again, it's like, I okay, got your point. Duly noted. Why are you? so worked up about this so yes there are certain sort of inevitabilities so we're always like marriage is uh you know um is is the least bad arrangement perhaps for for you know democracy is the least bad political arrangement what you, you're going to have an aristocracy the deck is always going to be uh stacked i guess the idea is just how can you make it as fluid as possible i would point to like what post-industrial revolution or post-French revolution France, where yes, if somebody makes a bunch of money, they're going to try to prop up their children and to, you know, uh, extend their power in their wealth. But the thing is, at least the kid didn't just become a Duke because he was born there. At least somebody can still have an idea and penetrate that aristocracy. Was Peter Thiel born on third base? Uh, oddly, not as much as you would think. Okay, so the system's working. Right. Um, right. Uh, well, however, um, God, so I'm always, I always, for your listeners, I've done these things so many times, and I, and I, to explain the ideas, I'm like, well, so actually what Curtis would say to that. Yeah, yeah. I, so I always disclaimer, like, this is not me. This is not my voice. This is Curtis sort of giving you. I'm, I'm speaking for Curtis here. I think you're talking to a very open-minded group of okay. people. Who I, are just, I, who, I just, I, I just want to be a referee in this. I'll just try. I'm just trying to define terms. Right, and and that's yeah. that's what I'm trying to do. I right. just, I, I know that. his, I know this shit so much that I, I, mm -hmm. I just respond in their voice, and then I'm like, wait, wait, wait everybody understand. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the thing is here, like, sure, yes, you can get elevated from nothing. Why yeah. are you getting elevated? And what is that benefiting? And actually. Would it not be better 
in certain ways to have like we had like so for example in terms of the Kennedys or the the, the Henry like I, I would I don't know this for a fact but I would guess that Curtis is a big fan of like Henry Adams uh, and the sort of the Quincy's and the Adamses that that represented a kind of vision of American statesmanship, a vision of continuity, not of governance, not exactly of governing structures, mm-hmm. but of a, a party vision and a vision for the country that was sort of yeah. reproduced itself through generations. So Curtis is a big fan of the Stuart monarchy. Um, with, actually, I don't know if he's a fan, but he's a big fan of the mode of governance represented by the English Stuart monarchy, um, where people in that day talked a lot about liberty, which is a very weird thing to think about because you had a monarch and you had social stations that were to some degree determined by heredity. Um, but within that system, you had a certain amount of, um, I don't know if liberty such as we understand it makes sense in this context, but you had agency as a citizen and you had ability to kind of influence these people. And then you had this parliamentary structure. I'm not sure if he likes that. Um, but it the Stuart monarchy brought together these kind of deep traditions of the nation. You know, they were they were pushed back against the Puritans who wanted to get rid of Morris dancing and symbolism and incense and all this stuff. Uh, but also political continuity um, and political stability. Um, and so Curtis will always talk about order. Like he, he likes order. He likes, he thinks that like humans when they have order, they're able to flourish in ways that they do not if they have unpredictability. So this gets to marriage, this gets to sets politics, this gets to literally like Blake Masters will talk about, and I think it's a worthwhile conversation. Blake Masters will talk about why is it normal for kids in America to live 1,200, 1,300 miles from their families? Why is that happening? And why did we as a society decide that was a good idea? That's an interesting question that like you don't hear mainstream America asking. Um, but, well, again, you know, but, but, but I would ask a question, what, 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 what role did government play in normalizing that? I'm not sure government, well, I would argue that actually government probably created a lot of that because, because our, our sort of political economy structure presupposes that if there's not jobs in your small town, you go find them. Or, mm-hmm. you know, we sort of, we allowed for the centralization of positions, all the positions of major power in this country exist on the coast to some degree, whether that's media, academia, corporate power, they tend to, to flock to very specific centers. Um, right. And so, and our government did nothing to stop that. Um, but you're right. I'm not sure it is a governmental question. And right. I'm not sure that Blake considers it a governmental question. I think that a lot of, a lot of this stuff, you would sort of want, again, to go back to that kind of anthropologist definition of culture what you want is that right of refusal. So like if to get power in this system, you have to say yes to moving to going to a good liberal arts college and then moving to Brooklyn or moving to Philadelphia or moving to to San Francisco, you don't have the right of refusal because otherwise you're going to end up stuck in a small town being a nobody, right? Right. And nobody wants to be a nobody. So what you want is a system that actually helps people get elevated um, while preserving their kind of internal cultural ties and stuff like that and that is a governing question so saudi arabia allows for that to some degree um because you have a place and a role that elevates you even if it's just in your one little town everybody has somebody else they're answering to um and so it's not a to me personally a good solution but you can see how monarchy like a strong ruler who's just no Chicago's going to have its own duke. I'm, I'm making this up. This is not Curtis. Chicago yeah. has its own duke. 
And within that duchy, there's stuff that elevates you and you get to be a knight and all this stuff is going to happen, but you're not going anywhere else. You're going to get married to somebody else from Chicago. A strong ruler can actually enforce cultural values in a way that we do not in our decentralized system. <laughs> I, 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 I never thought I'd be living in a world where this is like just a, hey, some people believe what you just said and I don't and that's totally fine. And yet, here, how, are you, how are you doing on time? I have a bunch of other things I want to ask you about. Let me uh, know. I'm fine. I'm fine. I got to make a call eventually, but I, um, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. We'll have to cut that out. But um, worry about it. yeah, let's keep talking. Okay. Let's talk about, I guess, sort of touch on the role that religion plays in this. A uh, couple different quotes. GOP Senate candidate Blake Masters, again, in saying the progressive left remains the enemy. Um, you ask him to give a vision of what victory for a side would look like. And he says, it's just families and meaningful work so that you can raise your kids and worship and pursue your hobbies and figure out what the meaning of it all is is now i could take pot shots about that I, I i do not experience the left as being anti-hobby but you know he's just talking i get that um and someone else elsewhere in the article says they're railing against quote the idea that you can't raise your kids in a traditional somewhat religious household with having them without having them educated at school that their parents are nazis my kids go to school in like absolute libtard central who is, where is the school where this is, it, it just seems I just so uh, quixotic is the proper word here, tilting at the, I'm not saying these problems aren't there, they just seem so, ex, the specter of them seems so exaggerated in their mind relative, and I, I live in, if it's not happening in central Los Angeles, okay, sure, it's happening in San Francisco, yeah, San Francisco's gotten a little wild, where the hell is this world that they are so afraid of, is it in Arkansas, is it? That's an interesting question, I, the truth is, the school stuff, the debates about schools, like, I find them so laced through with bad faith, um, to some degree on every side, yeah, um, that I sort of checked out of it, mm -hmm. um, well, but real quick, when you talk about schools, are we talking about colleges to me are a different conversation? Yeah, from... I'm talking I'm talking about, uh, you know, secondary school. Yeah, sure. K okay. K-12. Yeah. Um, so look, okay, I'm going to push back on one thing there. So sure. people people say people say on the left all the time. And I think it's I think it's bad politics. People say on the left, oh, this isn't critical race theory. This is none of this is critical race theory because technically critical race theory is blah, 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 blah. I think that's horrible politics because I think average people know that something is changing in how we talk about race and politics in America. Yeah. And that broadly speaking, there's a shorthand for that. That is CRT that most just like people out in the world are like, Oh, huh? Interesting. Okay. That, that derives from a set of university studies and changes in conversation that we did not have before that now we are having. And yeah, a lot yeah, of people yeah. apply that name and people go crazy. People go crazy because they're like, well, the New York times is telling me this thing doesn't exist when it exists. Yeah, um, the dogs, the cows out of the barn or whatever. People, yeah. people, we, you got to know what people mean when they say CRT at this point. And right. like, yeah, just just get rid of that. Yes. Um, no, not get rid of the stuff. I mean, get rid of the, that conversation. Yeah. Um, it's the same thing when people say there's no cancel culture. People know it when they see it. And even if they're not allowed to call it that, it's there. There's some yes. force out there. And a lot of people don't like it. And these are not right wing people. Right. So when you talk about L.A., I mean, I live I don't currently live in L.A., but I lived mm -hmm. in L.A. for a long time. Uh. I do think that there is a certain level on which like, you know, I talk to parents and stuff and I talk about, so for example, I would talk about like 
doing jujitsu or something. And like, you'll hear the parents, I don't know about the kids, but the parents kind of like quick be like, so isn't that kind of toxic masculinity? Like there are ways in which this stuff filters into a feeling Mm -hmm. that even relatively innocuous activities are not okay. Yeah. Um, And I agree with you. This has produced a response on the other side that is like, really, really, really freaked out. And to some degree doesn't really correspond to anything that I personally have experienced or seen in schools. No, Um, my son and all of his kids do jujitsu. I've never heard the phrase in that context. I just feel like I'm not living in the same reality as many other people. Oh, I heard heard that. I heard that on a hinge date once. Oh my God. All right. Um, Wow. Yeah. Maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe it's because we're all old parents, but we're just like, oh, it's great. The boys are getting exercise and some self-discipline. Like, oh, that's it. It's jujitsu, man. (laughs) My gym, gym, (laughs) candidly, too, is kind of toxic. So those those exist, too. Yeah, yeah, my gym is legit toxic, but that's not, that's that's beside the point. Um, But, okay, that was a weird tendential answer. But what I'm trying to say is that, like, Mm -hmm. I think that denying that something is changing very quickly in how we talk about and experience American culture and that kids brought up into that new thing are going to be different. They're going to experience America and its history and its vision of itself very differently than probably you and I did. That sure, is yeah. true. Right. Um, and I think that JD, for example, JD is the great person to, I mean, just cause I know what he thinks about this. Um, yeah. You know, JD very much views particularly this stuff such as it manifests at Yale, his law school alma mater, um, as something that is ripping apart the fabric of the country. Um, And what is problematic about all of this is that you basically, you need one side to give, put down its guns. Right. If if you're going to say, if JD is over here saying this is ripping apart the, the fabric of the country, well, yeah, it is. It wouldn't be ripping apart the fabric of the country if you didn't care about it, right? Um, and then, but then JD, of course, can say like, well, it wouldn't be ripping apart the fabric of the country if they would just let conservatives like be ultra Christian and still go to Yale Law, which perhaps they do, they can. I don't know anything about that. But yeah. so you have these two sides that absolutely fundamentally differ in the basics of what we are as a country. Right. And you don't, their whole argument is that the other side should stop doing the thing that they're doing. And then we could all get together and be happy again. That's the whole argument. And that's the problem. Um, except that JD has to some degree just stopped having that conversation. Like, so you'll notice, you know, I talk a lot about this because it sticks in my cross. Sometimes he uses the phrase, our people, my people, you always kind of have to wonder like, well, who, um, and with the context of seizing institutions, as he talks about, uh, when he talks about our people, he means like activists and intellectuals and people on the conservative right who can do that. When he talks about my people in Ohio, you're kind of like, wait, hold on. Who are those people? And like, why, why, why are we doing stuff just for those people? Who's my people? Um, and I've talked to him about this before because I am from the same part of Ohio as he's from. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm a white dude. And as I've said to him, um, I bring this up a lot because it, 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 I think it's important. To me, that hits different when you say my people, because like it's literally you're talking about me and there's a kind of tribal feeling that that's summoning mm-hmm. that has long been sort of distant from acceptable American politics. Yeah. And then JD will dance with. JD will 
straight up dance with it because he's trying to bring those people the my people types along yeah. in a project to seize institutions so he'll talk about i can't get there with 52 percent of the vote and when he says that he's not talking about getting to be a senator he's talking about taking like like i've looked i have a transcript with him that i've looked at a lot and there's no way to read it except that he's thinking steps at beyond being senator he is thinking about being president or something yeah if they're still president at that point um <laughs> or king right he says that we can't do that with 52 percent of the vote so he, he envisions there's a kind of 50 percent of it maybe less 40 percent of america is kind of like wishy-washy undecided but turned off a lot by elite american culture yeah, then there's yeah. kind of what he calls the regime which is like people who work at the new york times people who go to yale people who go to oberlin that kind of thing uh, and the regime, which maybe we should talk about, is much bigger than you would think of. It's again like like the Soviet Communist Party. It's not the Politburo. It's the party. It's a layer of five to twenty percent of the people who are yeah. involved in governance and power. Right. Uh, and then he but, used, but to, to use, your, use yourself as an example in the article, just by virtue of the fact that you are selling your services to publications that whose sole purpose, according to this theory, is to prop up the regime. You are a tiny little puppet of the machine fighting for scraps from the machine. Yes. Right. However, interestingly enough, and <laughs> this is kind of true, um, like J.D. was like, you seem to be like immune to the incentives of the regime, which is why I'm broke, I think. Um, yeah. But like. So he, he, JD was like, I don't view you as part of the regime because you like you like operate independently of their structures, which is why he talks to me. But it's interesting to talk about that because you're like, these guys think of this shit as an actual governing regime with police powers and all of this other stuff. They think they do not think about power in America the way that most people probably listen to this do. They yeah. think we have a regime that if you cross them, you can get you can get hurt, you know, um, and there's something to that um and then is, 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 is there yeah 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 definitely definitely and uh, uh, my argument for that being true is that it used to happen to the left um it when when the left when the anti-globalization energy the anti-establishment energy was on the left um i mean the the systems of media came for the left and said these people are out of their minds for opposing trade groups they, they i mean they pull ax bernie um yeah this stuff is real. I mean, this goes back uh, as so, 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 media smear campaigns orchestrated. Yeah, I mean, oh, I see. Okay, yeah, all right. Um, and, but but a media smear campaign that results in a political movement not achieving power. Yeah, is a higher stakes thing than just conversation in the media. And I think that's important. This goes back to Chomsky manufacturing consent and stuff like that. Right. This isn't just new to these guys. And I think they are right that that regime will exercise very powerful forces that are to some degree invisible um, to keep its enemies away. I don't, I don't think that's a right-wing thing. Um, no, no, sure, sure, agree. People are, it, it, if, if power exists, it will be exercised. And do, do we believe that the a powerful person has a, a you know, golf relationship with the guy who runs the paper? Hey, maybe run this, maybe don't run that. Yes, so everything else you just said logically follows from that. Duh. I have three more questions. Take as much or as little time as you want to answer each of them. Maybe the most incredible Steingart-esque part of the article to me you describe the appeal of this far right mindset among the urban specifically new york hipster set somebody says everyone in new york dresses like a duck hunter now casual sex is out you describe downtown it girls wearing trump hats really i was just there 
This is this is a thing. It's it's become cool among the ultra cool of downtown New York, well born, well bred, to not have casual sex and to be closet Trump fans. Um. Well, I mean, people say. I mean, listen to Red Scare. Listen to Wet Brain. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I was thinking. I was thinking of a Red Scare quote recently, and I forgive them for talking shit about me. Um, but uh, there, Dasha said something like it was somebody talking shit about her, and she said something about how Christ was her strength, and none of my enemies shall prosper, bitch. And I just thought that was such a like, okay, wow, we're in a moment, right? That like the this cool podcast with yeah. you know nexus of art world and politics and little media spheres and stuff you're talking about you know you're talking about christ's strength and 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 you know quoting i think that's a bible quote i'm not sure um sounds like it yeah and uh so what's interesting about this is that i like proudly have not set foot in new york in years Mm -hmm. uh and people like again I think that if you were there during this time when it like when Curtis started getting discussed on Red Scare, things like that, like if you were there, that almost felt gradual and natural. Whereas I was just out here doing Western stuff and like reporting in the woods. And I started to get these kind of smoke signals about something changing. And I started like listening to Red Scare again. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, wait, something has really something is way different. Um, and, uh, this podcast, wet brain is kind of probably the symbol of that. Um, I did an episode with them. You should listen to it. I think it's good. Uh, (laughs) but, um, the thing about it and the thing about all of this stuff, the thing about all these conversations is that when the thesis of this new right is that when cool people in positions of power in media and politics do things, the proles come along. That's, that's Curtis's huge thesis. Okay. Um, And so it's sort of borne out, I think, a little bit in the disaffection with quote unquote liberalism uh, that you're seeing in places like New York, even more so in Austin, Miami, Reno, places like that. Um, And I'll just say like, to some degree, it's natural. To some degree, it's natural because we've had 45 years of basically the ideology of boomers presenting itself as revolution and liberation and resistance and all this stuff. And at a certain point, you know, kids are not going to want to keep doing what their parents say was their rebellion. Um, and I think that that is, that's just a natural force, um, quite aside from where the politics are coming from. I, th- I think that that's, that's a big part of this stuff. Okay. Two more questions. And maybe you just answered the, the first of the two. Um, if a left-leaning person someone who's, you know, raised in that sort of, that's the ocean that they're to, to further the fish metaphor they're raised in, um, why would, if you feel like the left is failing or has failed you or failed the country, why would that push you right rather than push you to want to reform the left? Don't you at some point have to find the ideology of the right appealing? You can't be right wing because you don't, because you think left wing politicians suck. It doesn't actually work that way. Right. I'm going to answer this one for myself. This is right. my own. Yeah. Um, I don't, <sighs> I mean, I grew up, I mean, my parents, I grew up super left-wing. My parents were communists. Um, I grew, grew up going to communist camp. I was an anarchist wow. starting when I was 13. I still, to some degree, consider myself an anarchist. Um, I'm not sure that the vision, that the historical vision of, you know, sort of progressivism and especially class politics yeah. that the left is using, the frames that the left has been using, uh, do well 
to address the problems such as we face them in this current world. Um, I'm not, that doesn't mean I'm not a leftist. I will say that personally though, I have found that I make a lot of connections with people who are politically homeless now. Um, And I'm very careful about this because I don't want to get, I'm not trying to get implicated in being right wing. And I'm I'm very, very, very careful about that. Not Mm -hmm. for my own presentation, but for my own independence as a reporter. Um, And the thing that I will say is that a lot of people feel like if they don't follow the dictates of like, you have to say this kind of thing in this kind of way, they get labeled right wing anyway. So right. they just kind of shoot straight over to the other side. And yes. it's fun. I've seen this so many times. It feels so good. And people yeah. will talk about this. I, this got cut from the piece. But I got told when I was in Atcon, just take the red pill. Think about how much easier your life will be. I got told that a lot. And I have not taken the red pill such as it is. But I can understand what they're saying. Because then all of a sudden you get to go and you get to say whatever you want. You get to be like edgy and all this stuff and i think that's again this isn't like a political thing this is just like a kind of how culture works i think that like a lot of people have really fallen that way um as far as like why not go to the right last bit on this Mm -hmm. or why not why not like reform the left i think a lot of people and i would i would subscribe to this too like i think using right wing and left wing valences to address the problems that we're using today are probably not going to be satisfactory and we're going to have to find politics that transcend that i don't know what that's going to look like and it's going to require right-wing people abandoning a lot of their shibboleths it can't just be the left and right now it feels to me like a lot of this political energy is them saying come to us or we're going to take over and that's not going to work that's not going to work any better than any of the stuff they're opposing that's my opinion Okay, final question. Maybe you just answered this one. You don't seem to regard any of the prominent figures in this piece to be idiots or uh, snake oil salesmen or especially evil. Um, I I was going to say, do you find any of the arguments compelling? Put it this way. What do you find most compelling if you had to pick something about the orthodoxy of this new deep right? Oh, I think it's it's really easy. I think think that people around the world are living through an age of absolutely massive disruption in Uh ways that are really, really not part of their choice. If you're in Vietnam and you're experiencing 10, 12% year on year population growth or whatever, you're having whole, like the the structures of globalism are disrupting modes of culture and life at such an incredibly rapid pace that the idea that any of us have a say about this or that any government has a handle on it is simply to me out of, it's just mind blowing that anybody could imagine that we are living through a spiral of craziness that is going to end up possibly with really bad stuff. Um, and I think that these people identify that. I don't, I agree with their analysis about it. I don't agree with their prescriptions. That's, I mean, I wish that the left had better prescriptions for it. I live, wish that this was stuff that we were talking about all the time. Yeah. Um, I also think that tech is absolutely wrecking our political conversations and yes. our brains. Um, and that we need a politics that answers that. It's one of the biggest questions in our entire society. And you would think that the fact that Gen Z is incredibly unhappy, has all of these mental problems, is possibly the unhappiest generation in recorded history. You would think that that would be front page news and something the president of the United States would talk about. And they're not. And I would I think it's a great shame if we're just going to leave that to the right to discuss. Right. So I think I'm right there with you. Um, 
I, I'm just I'm I'm just interested in in answers and uh and and it seems like at the very least you feel many people on the new right are at least asking the right questions. Definitely, and I, again, I just think if instead of having a political war, ask those questions and win the arguments. And I, I sometimes question whether we're even equipped to do that as a polity, by right or left. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, no, I'm, I'm right there. I'm right there with you. Yeah. None of this might even matter if we're talking about a conversation that neither side is actually equipped to have. But that's a conversation for exactly. yeah, that's, that's a conversation exactly. for another day. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for the extra time, uh, James Pogue. The article is called "Inside the New Right," where Peter Thiel is placing his biggest bets. It's in Vanity Fair, and of course, I'll link to it when I post this ep- episode. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. Thank you. Great questions. I really appreciate it. This is fun. 